1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Random Elcher, and I am very interested today to be learning um, a bit of an interest, a book that's very much relevant to current politics, um, but isn't just about what's happening right this second. It helps us unpack maybe some of the news, by giving us some really important context. And the book is titled Hidden Hand, Exposing How the Chinese Communist Party is Reshaping the World, uh, published by One World in 2021. And I'm very pleased today to have with me one of the two authors of this book. The book was written by Dr. Clive Hamilton and Dr. Marika Olberg. And I'm pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Clive Hamilton to the podcast to discuss the book with us today. Pleasure to be here. Could you please start us off by introducing yourself, your academic background a bit, um, and then explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Okay, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I classify myself, I suppose, as a a public intellectual, uh, which uh, in Australia translates pretty accurately as wanker, um, but uh, that's just part of the anti-intellectual culture in my country. Um, So uh, I'm an economist by training uh, originally um, at the University of Sussex. I did my uh, DPhil in the economics of development, as it happens. Um, And I did various things and set up a think tank, a progressive think tank in Australia in the early 1990s because we didn't have any, only conservative think tanks. I ran that for some 14 years. Uh, and that had quite a big impact, that organisation, think tank. And then uh, when I left, I got a job at Charles Sturt University as the, their kind of public intellectual. My designation is a Professor of Public Ethics. And my interests uh, range fairly widely. Probably the dominant, in fact, no question, the dominant interest um, or passion, one could say, of mine over the last 25 years is has been climate change. I've written quite a lot of books on climate change. The last one I wrote called Defiant Earth, the fate of humans in the Anthropocene. Uh, but as I was finishing that book in 2016, I was in increasingly uh, despondent, in fact, despairing about the failure of the world to respond to the scientific warnings. Um, and, um, you know, to be truthful, um, I thought I just couldn't keep writing on climate change. It was just too crushing. And at about that time, um, there were some news stories that appeared in the newspapers in Australia about um, very large donations by Chinese or Chinese-Australian business people to the major political parties. In Australia, and in particular about the role of a Labour Party senator, a very influential kind of uh, party apparatchik named uh, Sam Dastiari, and a close relationship he had with a Chinese businessman living in Australia named Huang Moore. And there was a close kind of connection between these two, a very transactional one, but Sam Dastiari started um, uh, spouting Chinese Communist Party talking points. Uh, and he was uh, caned in the media and politically and eventually uh, had to resign. Um, it was a complicated story, but it struck me that there was something really big going on because there were a number of wealthy Chinese or Chinese-Australian businessmen giving large sums of money to the political parties without apparently wanting anything in return. And when uh, journalists, and there are only about three or four of them at that stage who were writing about China, um, some in China itself, um, uh, revealed the links between these business people and arms of the Chinese Communist Party that it struck me that there's something big and very worrying going on and so I decided that I'd write a book about it. Uh, So I switched from writing about climate change to writing about China, which I had no background in, but hey, I've written uh, opposing as an expert on other uh, topics, so why not this? And the first thing I did, as a good researcher does, is go and speak to the people who really know the subject, and uh, apart from the journalists in question, there are several sinologists in Australia who uh, are very good and had a very good understanding of the foreign influence operations of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, John Fitzgerald, for example. I spoke to them um, and became more alarmed at what I learned, but also learned from them that no-one else was writing this book. None of their colleagues were writing it. It struck me as odd. So and they encouraged me to write it. So, um, a year later, uh, my first of two books on China, called *Silent Invasion: The um, uh, Influence of uh, the Chinese Communist Party in Australia*, was published um, in extremely difficult circumstances.
0: Well, thank you for introducing us to your background and kind of explaining the trajectory of how you came to this. In some ways, it opens up, um, uh, it, it, it highlights a theme throughout the book of kind of going, seeing something you can see on the public record and going, wait a second, what's happening there? And then investigating it, uh, which I think the title Hidden Hand um, exemplifies quite well. Uh, but before we get into some of the details of the book, you make an important point at the beginning that I think is worth including in the interview as well, uh, which is about definitions. So in this book, what does the shorthand term, the West, mean? And similarly, the shorthand of China?
1: Well, after uh, my first book, uh, Silent Invasion, was all about Australia, a very detailed expose of the whole range of methods by which the Chinese Communist Party was um, building its influence in Australia in all kinds of different ways described in the book uh, and, and, and documented in forensic detail. I think there are some 2,000 footnotes or endnotes. Um, um, so then the publisher said, uh, and the book was, you know, a big success, um, even, even overseas, I mean, it, Sold shed loads in Japan, for example, and was published in Chinese and Vietnamese and various other languages. The publisher said, Clive, what you need to write a book, a basic, you know, a silent invasion for uh, the rest of the world. And after a while, I thought maybe that's not a bad idea. And then I teamed up with my co author, uh, Marika Olberg. Uh, in Berlin. She's a, a, a real sinologist in the way that I'm not. And uh, we decided to write uh, Hidden Hand, hand uh, but we confined it to the activities, influence, uh, and interference activities of the Chinese Communist Party in what we call, by way of shorthand, the West, which is North America, uh, US, Canada, and Europe, continental Europe plus Britain, Um we felt that it that was that was big enough uh, to to bite off. We couldn't do any more, and so uh, we decided just to use the shorthand term the West uh, for that. So that's kind of pretty straightforward. Uh, China is it requires more uh, explanation. One of the things I did when I wrote uh, Silent Invasion, and as we did in Hidden Hand, we made a very clear Categorical distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. And uh, because mm-hmm. of the CCP, of course, always elides the two, it's kind of presents itself as the representative, the embodiment, the spirit of the Chinese people, and which, of course, it's not. It's an authoritarian party state. Um, when we use the term China um, in the book, it, again, it's a sort of shorthand. It's, you know, it's like if you say Poland, the United Nations voted f- for X, we mean the government of Poland. And that's what we meant when we referred to China, the government of China, which is more or less uh, coincident with the Chinese Communist Party. So that's what we mean. And we stress throughout that we are not equating uh, the Chinese Communist Party with, with the people uh, or the nation.
0: Lovely. Thank you for clarifying that. I think it sets us up well to discuss uh, some of the other arguments in the book, Um, one of which is still, I guess, in the vein of kind of um, disentangling or maybe demystifying sort of common ideas um, about China, um, and perhaps adding sort of more nuance and more detail about them. And the idea uh, is often that kind of the spread of market forces, free market Um, will have some sort of impact on the Chinese Communist Party, um, and particularly that will have uh, some sort of weakening impact on them, that the free market and an authoritarian communist government are things that cannot necessarily go together. Um, And yet in the book, you argue that, quote, the spread of market forces did not weaken the power of the party state. In fact, today, it is more powerful than ever because of market forces. Can you tell us a little bit about this argument, please?
1: Well, in the 80s and 90s, and indeed the, the 2000s, in fact, arguably right up until about 2017, the view, particularly in the United States, but also elsewhere, was that uh, China, by opening up to the free market internally and engaging in the international economy, um, uh, would, uh, would, would liberalise not only economically, but also politically. It would be exposed to uh, all of these uh, forces that would build the middle class, that would demand uh, political and personal freedoms. And this would be a way of uh, diluting the uh, power and influence of the Chinese Communist Party. And this was very much the kind of liberal argument. Um, And it was based on um, a kind of cultural assumption that our system is better than any other and when people are exposed to it, they will see the uh, joys and benefits of liberal capitalism and they will want it and, in fact, demand it. And that was the major rationale, for example, for uh, the major powers other than China, particularly the United States, agreeing to the uh, accession of um, or granting of uh, to China of... of uh, of, um, uh, um, of uh, I've had a mental block on the term in two thousand and one, World Trade Organization, uh, des- de- its designation as a again I've had a mental block as a as a market Save economy.
0: a uh,
1: uh,
0: market economy, yeah,
1: as a market economy, yes, and which which allowed it to uh, have have all kinds of extra rights and. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it was still heavily controlled by the state, etc. So, but what we saw, in fact, when, when Deng Xiaoping uh, permitted the uh, introduction of market forces into the uh, Chinese economy, um, and then the extraordinary uh, economic growth of China in the 90s and uh, 2000s, what we saw was uh, the power of the Chinese Communist Party expands uh, enormously, particularly when uh, uh, Xi Jinping became uh, the president or rather the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party uh, some uh, 10 years ago. And the party uh, mobilised those economic forces that had been unleashed in various ways for a start it gave tremendous legitimacy to the party which was seen to be the organisation that had overseen and permitted this uh, fabulous growth in the size of the chinese economy and indeed the incomes of most uh, chinese people and in fact the legitimacy of the party is built on that above all its its uh, economic success i mean I and one or two others have argued, in fact, it wasn't the party that uh, had this uh, monstrous success. What the party did was, in fact, take its foot off the neck of the Chinese people to allow them to you know, own property, uh, create uh, a business, move from one city to another, engage in trading relationships, all the things we just think are natural and normal, we take for granted. Party allowed people to do that, and the Chinese people themselves lifted eight hundred people, eight hundred million people out of out of poverty. But nevertheless, the party gained enormous power and legitimacy as a result of that extraordinary period of economic growth. Um, in addition to that, uh, um, you had uh, the party has insisted that the the people who have headed the uh, the major corporations and indeed the, even the middling-sized corporations, those people uh, have been pressured, uh, coerced, induced uh, to maintain and declare their loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. And they've been brought into various Communist Party mechanisms which have helped their uh, business advancement in exchange for their loyalty to the party. And we've seen what happens to even the most powerful business people um, if they step out of line. Jack Ma, for example, the tech uh, multi-billionaire, the kind of Steve Jobs, um, Elon Musk, whatever of of China, when he made some critical remarks about the uh, central bank uh, a couple of years ago, he was suddenly found himself... Um, persona non grata, and he's kind of been disempowered and um, kind of off the scene. I mean, it's astonishing. Um, so Chinese firms, very big ones in China and all over the world, and this is particularly important, have been mobilised uh, in order to advance the influence of the of the Chinese government, of the Chinese Communist Party all around the world. So that's another reason That market forces have been so instrumental in building the power of the CCP at home and abroad. But the other, perhaps another factor uh, uh, related to that, or coming back the other way, is that there's been an enormous rush for 25 years uh, uh, by Western uh, businesses, United States, Europe, to. build their market shares uh, in China to uh, uh, ship their uh, factories uh, to China. And as a result of that, um, the Chinese Communist Party has built a very uh, important cadre, if I can use that uh, term, of uh, Western business people who see the world uh, the way the Chinese Communist Party wants them to see the world, or at a minimum, argues that um, we must not, under any circumstances, upset Beijing. Perhaps one of the uh, leading cases is uh, the German automobile industry, which is now deeply integrated uh, into uh, the Chinese market, both as Uh, a market for selling its vehicles. Uh, I think they sell more vehicles in China than anywhere else, but also as a place where they have their vehicles built and are imported, whether it's Mercedes or BMW, back into Europe or exported to the United States. So the German auto industry has for a couple of decades, or 15 years or so, really probably dictated, is too strong a term, but heavily shaped the German government's approach to China, which has basically been one of appeasement. So that's another way in which the uh, uh, development of uh, uh, market forces um, has uh, enabled the Chinese Communist Party to build its power within China and around the world.
0: Thank you for explaining that and giving kind of a number of angles to it as well. As I said, it's it's very much more of a nuanced argument than the kind of straightforward, oh, the market will change everything. Um, So thank you for explaining that. And a a similar one about kind of um, something that we often see and talked about in the West as kind of a Western thing, you argue in the book, nonetheless, has a lot of power in China. And this is specifically uh, Joseph Nye's work on soft power. Um, How has this been an influential concept within China?
1: Yeah, really fascinating. I was intrigued when I started to understand this from my uh, cyanologist uh, friends, um, because it's not what you think. So Joseph Nye, I, I think in the early 90s, came up with this idea of soft power, uh, uh, referring particularly to the ability of the United States to co-opt uh, people's governments, societies abroad, uh, rather than coerce them into seeing the world in a way way concordant with Washington's view of the world, basically. Um, And so soft power, as opposed to hard power, that is military force, um, uh, was presented by Joseph Nye as the ability to exert influence around the world through the lure of culture and the liberal ideas of freedom. Um, and and so the projection of this soft power, which is something that just happened because of the nature of American society and culture, I mean, think Hollywood, for example, um, was used to influence behaviour around the world, built admiration for the United States. If you just think that it's declined a little bit in recent years, but throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, there was this kind of in the rest of the world from europe to you know colombia to i don't know zambia this kind of romantic view of the united states as the land of freedom streets paper gold the land of opportunity etc cetera, etc cetera. enormous let's say sex appeal uh which was which was projected around the world uh, not deliberately it was just um, as, as it happened but had an enormous influence i mean if you think about the number of people who wanted to migrate to the United States. Uh, They didn't want to go to the Soviet Union. They didn't want to go to China. They wanted to go, everybody wanted to go to the United States. And so this was the result of US soft power. Now, when uh, Nye's book was published in the 1990s, the Chinese Communist Party interpreted it as a, a kind of, Uh, blueprint for the way in which the United States planned to undermine China ideologically and culturally. So they read it as an enormous threat to their grasp on power. As the Chinese Communist Party saw it, America had plans to intensify its cultural and its ideological inflows into China as well as... uh, and the rest of the world, the third world, uh, as we referred to it then before um, the global south became more correct. Um, and the US was doing this, was kind of mobilising this soft power, uh, which had, all, had always been exported kind of passively, but the US was seen to mobilise it in order to make those countries, including uh, China, accept the American values system. And this, of course, was interpreted by the CCP as very, very threatening. Uh, because it, uh, even more so uh, in subsequent years when China, a- a becoming a, a very major economic uh, force, began to dream of exerting its influence uh, more widely in the uh, Indo-Pacific region and then uh, uh, t- uh, beyond to, to the whole world. And the uh, export of American soft power was seen as a direct, direct threat, particularly when China Chinese people, uh, notably young people, began to mimic the cultural styles, the trends uh, of the United States, um, and to call for some of the freedoms that the United States was seen to uh, represent. And of course, uh, the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre in 1989, was a turning point in, in Chinese history, uh, in this regard. Let me just uh, I'll just make a final comment on this. Something that we stress very heavily in Hidden Hand, and this comes uh, very much from my co-author Marika Olberg. I, I should say because she her PhD was on uh, was about uh, the CCP's external propaganda system. We talk a lot in the book about uh, discourse control or discourse power, and the CCP sees itself as engaged in a life-or-death struggle uh, with the West, with Western ideas, uh, with with liberal democracy, uh, which it sees as fundamentally uh, threatening. And so it engages in an enormous uh, program of discourse control, that is, to uh, to control the discourse, to influence, shape the way in which China and the Chinese Communist Party are seen and discussed around the world. And this helps to explain something that uh, listeners to this program um, will understand, and that is the Chinese Communist Party puts an enormous amount of uh, attention into trying to influence universities in the West Uh, universities and think tanks uh, in the West. And that's because they believe in the power of ideas. Uh, They believe that ideas shape history. They believe that if they lose the battle of ideas, that the war is lost. And remember, these people are good Marxist-Leninists and believe that they're in a constant state of struggle. They are always at war with enemies. Um, And part of that war is a war of ideas. And so that's why, um, as opposed to uh, neoliberalism and and, uh, conservative governments in Western countries who have been trashing universities, particularly the social sciences and the humanities, actually seeing them as a threat um, with the whole uh, political uh, correctness and wokeness and that whole critique, and therefore marginalizing and suppressing uh, and attacking um, the generators of ideas in our universities and think tanks, the Chinese Communist Party, on the hand, uh, sees it very differently, saying, no, these people are really important. These people produce ideas and and, and these ideas shape societies and shape history. And that's why um, there's uh, been uh, um, a lot of, uh, for those of us who, who start to realise what's going on, uh, a lot of um, anxiety about, the ways in which the CCP has uh, exerted influence within the academy.
0: So that's a perfect um, move to the next question I want to ask. Thank you very conveniently. Um, I want to ask you about some of these methods of influence that are detailed um, really wonderfully in the book. There's a massive amount of detail looking at examples in Australia, America, the UK, Europe, there's all sorts of examples. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the mechanisms of influence in a way? How does the CCP sort of groom people like foreign diplomats or think tank experts or um, people in academia to result in those people then speaking publicly in favor of, to various degrees, of China and the CCP? How, How does that influence work?
1: Well, It took me a while to realise this when I first was, um, it was only towards the end of writing my first book um, uh, that I realised that, in a way, uh, that book and and this one that Marika and I have written, they are above all uh, about psychology because the Chinese Communist Party has, uh, over its history, right from its formation in the 1920s, Um, it's developed really quite sophisticated techniques of psychological manipulation uh, of both friends and enemies alike. And the aim of these um, techniques of psychological manipulation is to draw the target, uh, uh, especially members of elites, into uh, alignment with Beijing's thinking and its political objectives. And often the way they do this, there are a number of them they are very much detailed uh, in, in both books, as, as you say, because we wanted to give a lot of examples. And it means, incidentally, that uh, the books talk a lot about individuals. You know, we pick out a certain person or a certain people and we start talking about what they say, how they've been influenced, who they have mixed with, um, what pressures or uh, or or, um, or rewards have been offered to them? Um, it's it's kind of tricky legally <laughs> because you get into defamation territory there. Uh, but you have to do that because if you just talk in the abstract, you really don't understand about exactly how the CCP uh, operates. But the one there's a New Zealand scholar, uh, James Toe, um, himself, himself of. Chinese heritage, who described this psychological work as uh, an effective tool for intensive behavioural control and manipulation, while at the same time appearing benign, benevolent and helpful. And one of the most fascinating cases in recent times was a diplomat um, uh, named John McCallum, whom we talk about in the book. And he was Canada's ambassador to Beijing, but when the uh, case of uh, Meng Wanzhou, the, she was the uh, senior, uh, uh, financial officer, chief financial officer of Huawei, who was arrested or, or detained, yeah, arrested in Canada because the US had issued an extradition uh, order, and she was in, uh, she wasn't in prison. She was, um, you know, she she had a, a, an electronic tag attached to her. and she was allowed to stay in her uh, mansion in Vancouver, I think. Uh, Yeah, Vancouver. And uh, while two Canadians, the two Michaels, were arrested and uh, uh, treated purely for political reasons and treated appallingly, that's by the by. But uh, John McCallum, when uh, Meng Wanzhou was was arrested, um, he started to essentially give advice to her, to Huawei, to the Chinese government on how they, their best legal strategy uh, for getting her out because, you know, this was a bad thing to do to arrest this person. I mean, Canada had a legal obligation with the United States to to do it. And this attracted a lot of uh, attention and and criticism of John McCallum. I mean, why is he doing this? I mean, he's he's acting for Beijing rather than for... You know, for 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 Canada, rather than giving um, giving uh, confidential advice uh, to uh, Ottawa about the case, he was publicly talking about how China, Beijing, could best go about getting Meng Wanzhou out of this situation. And it struck me that he had been groomed, he'd been won over, he had basically swapped sides. In fact. Um, there was a uh, regional Chinese newspaper uh, re- reporting on this story at the time who who congratulated uh, Ambassador McCallum for, for switching sides, <laughs> um, which is probably not a wise thing for that newspaper editor to write. Um, but it was very interesting because a former Mexican ambassador to Beijing, uh, whose name was, uh, if I can get the pronunciation right, it was Jorge Guajardo. He told about how, in fact, I emailed him and asked him about this, how he had been groomed in the same way. And he said that envoys such as himself and McCallum, when they're new to Beijing, they're put in the freezer. They're isolated from senior Chinese officials. And they get quite paranoid after a few months. How can they do their job if no one will talk to them? But then after a while, a message is sent to them that a very high-ranking official wishes to speak to them, so they go to this meeting and they, they get a red carpet and a handshake and they're treated royally. And they're told that they, you know, that the Beijing understands that that this person has a really unique understanding of China. That they understand the, the nuance of, the, of the, and the delicacy of the of the party's position and the relationship. And that, so they start to get the impression they are special. That they've got a unique insight. Um, that they they get to see inside the minds of of top officials within the party, and they start to believe uh, that they've been entrusted with communicating the inside workings uh, of the thinking of the party back home to Ottawa, to Washington, to Mexico City, to London, to uh, wherever, and they start, in effect... Uh, speaking for the party because they feel that, that it's their duty, because they have this special insight that very few other people have. And that's what John McCallum seems to have been done. His mistake was he did it publicly. Um, he was a Sinophile from way back. He loved China and things, things Chinese. Um, his wife was Chinese. Um, and he was naive and uh, after the time, uh, the um, Trudeau was forced to fire him. He was an embarrassment, um, and so that was that's one way in which diplomats, uh, for example, are groomed. Uh, and, and I chose that word very deliberately when I started to use it because I think the process of grooming is very similar to the the one that we um, uh, we usually hear it. Uh, yeah, yeah, the context that's usually used in.
0: Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's helpful, as you said, to kind of understand a particular instance of it so that it becomes real um, to people. And similarly to this idea of um, ambassadors in Beijing, you also talk about in the book um, the CCP's influence in the United Nations and other international organizations like Interpol. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how this influence um, is being created and what the impacts of it are.
1: Well, when, uh, when China was uh, integrated uh, over some years into the international system, the WTO and so on, um, it's the party bosses in Beijing came to realise pretty quickly that they needed to assert influence in these international organisations. And so they began a fairly systematic uh, campaign of uh, building influence through all of these psychological and other techniques they've used, including, uh, in in many cases, a fairly kind of uh, ruthless one of just becoming the biggest donor um, and, and and of buying votes. I mean, there's a pretty systematic campaign of going around the world and essentially buying the votes of smaller nations in uh, the United Nations and various UN organizations and put uh, senior uh, Chinese government people who work for the party into all kinds of uh, UN uh, organizations where they uh, assert their influence in in the ways uh, that um, senior people can um, including uh, Interpol, uh, where uh, I mean, Interpol has been kind of uh, um, its prestige and and trust in it has really declined quite sharply because of the abuse of the red notice system, which has been used by China, but also a couple of other nations to pursue uh, uh, political uh, exiles uh, to get them back into the country. And uh, senior people uh, were uh, took over for some years uh, and still uh, Interpol, uh, top United Nations organisations, uh, which they've used, for example, to uh, exclude Taiwan uh, from del- deliberations, very kind of uh, ruthlessly, sometimes just grabbing Taiwan delegates and marching them out of meetings um, or refusing to participate as long as they're Taiwanese representatives there. And the WHO is a very good example. Um, The WHO is an organisation that became very, uh, I'd go so far as to say corrupted, not by people being bought off. But uh, the WHO um, came to see, uh, came to believe that uh, 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 keeping Beijing happy was a vital part of its function and if it alienated Beijing uh, then it wasn't doing its job properly and of course uh, we all now know the sorry sordid history of the WTO in the early months of the coronavirus uh, pandemic and the way in which um, the Secretary General of the WTO sucked up to uh, Xi Jinping and basically accepted the lies. the that the CCP was telling about this uh, this new virus, which was very damaging. I mean, people died around the world. I mean, <laughs> WHO is supposed to, you know, it's, its brief is to protect the health of citizens around the world, and it failed miserably in those in those early months because it had been influenced by by China uh, over a period of about twenty years. So. Um, the United States, under Trump, you know, who ha- handled so much of this very badly, <clears throat> was kind of was to kind of denounce, pack up, and go home, which was the worst thing the United States could have done. Uh, where it should have uh, increased its funding, mobilized uh, enlightened forces, and limited uh, China's influence within the UN and UN organizations, including the WTO. Um, I think the Biden administration understands that much better now, but. Um, There's so much to say about UN and UN organizations, but I think I'll leave it there.
0: That gives us a good um, snapshot, I suppose, of uh, what is put in the book. Obviously the book has a lot more detail if listeners are interested, but that's a helpful snapshot of it. I want to kind of continue the tour of some of the areas of influence. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover everything that is in the book. Um, But one of the other kind of aspects of influence that is discussed in the book that I found really interesting is about the CCP's impact on global publishing, which obviously has relevance um, to those of us interested in in books. Can you tell us about this impact in terms of content and the physical production?
1: Yeah, well, probably the first thing is the extraordinarily tight uh, censorship system that China has uh, uh, as part of its discourse control to to try uh, with great uh, efficacy to restrict the inflow of uh, unwelcome ideas into China. But um, China has a problem because, uh, um, because, as we know, international collaboration Exchange of ideas is extremely important, uh, particularly in the sciences, but not only in the sciences. And so, international uh, or journals, uh, academic journals, um, flow into uh, China and are read by Chinese uh, researchers and and academics. But sometimes, these journals, uh, uh, a lot of them are just banned, uh, but some of them contain material that CCP uh, does not want people in China reading. And there was a very good case uh, about three years ago of Cambridge University Press in some of its uh, journals, social science journal. Um, the the uh, edition or the issue of these journals that were sent into China electronically had certain uh, articles um, uh, deleted from it, articles that the CCP census didn't like. And so Cambridge University Press was basically collaborating in the uh, suppression of ideas uh, in China. And we've also seen, uh, well, they don't get publicised, but there are a lot of cases of publishers um, around the world uh, publishing books that they hope to sell in China's market, uh, ensuring that uh, they're sensitive one way or another or shaped in a way that's uh, not going to, um, so the books won't offend their senses, so that they'll sustain the market there. This is very, very insidious because it's really the the shadow of the CCP uh, that is more... Powerful than the CCP itself, which is, after all, what every dictatorship wants um, for people to jump at the shadow, and that's what happened in the case of my first book, *Silent Invasion*. Yeah, you know, it was to be published by uh, uh, my um, publisher of long, long-standing, uh, Alan and Unwin in Australia. had a long relationship. They'd published six or eight of my books. They are very keen on this book. They uh, believed in it, loved it. And then just as the finalised manuscript, which had been copy-edited, legal, so on and so forth, was about to go to uh, page proofs, they rang me up and said, we're pulling the plug. We're not going to publish your book because we're afraid of retribution from Beijing. I mean, it was a very, very shocking thing to happen. Um, I mean, the book wasn't going to be sold in China, uh, of course, but... Uh, although it was subsequently translated in, uh, into Chinese and Taiwan. But um, the publisher, very uh, prestigious, progressive, uh, socially committed publisher with a long and deep relationship with me, very committed to the book, this became so afraid that Beijing would punish it one way or another, they said, we're not going to publish your book. And so I was left without a publisher. So that was a very, very dramatic case Uh, I should say the main reason they gave um, was they were afraid of uh, uh, vexatious litigation by so-called whales, that is, uh, very rich uh, Chinese or Chinese-Australian businessmen launching defamation cases against the publisher, uh, even with no no prospect of, uh, of winning, but tying up the publisher in the courts for years at, at enormous expense. And, um, and they said, you know, we, we're so afraid of this, we're not going to publish your book. But another uh, uh, lesser but significant reason they gave is that they were afraid that they, if they published my book, they would no longer be able to have their books printed in China and this is not well understood, but most publishers in the West have I think I don't know there is a majority of their books physically printed in China because China has the world's it has very sophisticated printing industry. it uh, is about thirty percent cheaper than printing in Singapore or at home, and that's where publishers go um and so, their cost of production not for all their books might go up by uh, a a significant amount. And I think that um, when, uh, in fact, we now know that when publishers in Australia or Britain or the United States go to a printing house in China, um, they are told, they actually sent lists of names, uh, of sensitive names and subject areas that are not allowed to be in the book to be printed in China. So that leads to self-censorship, and there are many people who write, uh, sinologists and others who write about China, who engage in systematic self-censorship. They they just don't write certain things or, or write about aspects uh, in a particular way to get around the censors in China. And it's the kind of dirty secret of academia or segments of academia um, where um, authors all around the world uh, are reshaping what they write in order to not offend the censors in China for a range of reasons. So they can can, can get visas, so they don't come under pressure from their universities, so their publishers can uh, get their books printed there. Um, and so it's a very kind of insidious process. Let me just mention one last thing. I've noticed what well, was brought to my attention, and I wrote about it in, uh, in the uh, Times Higher Education Supplement a couple of years ago, um, that in scientific journals, uh, including some of the most prestigious ones, some of them... Uh, depending on the subject area, include maps. And if those maps are of the Southeast Asia or Indo-Pacific region or China itself, you know, it might be on geomorphology or biodiversity or a whole range of subjects, those maps include, and these are prestigious Western publishing houses, the Nine Dash Line. In other words, the entirely arbitrary... Uh, line drawn on maps by China right round through the South China Sea taking in seas traditionally uh, the uh, belonging to uh, uh, or um, uh, fishing rights uh, associated with the Philippines, Vietnam right down to Indonesia, Malaysia has no in fact has been ruled illegal by the international Court in the Hague. This has no legal justification at all. It's, it's a kind of land grab or a sea grab by Beijing uh, that causes enormous resentment and is resisted within Southeast Asia. But these scientific journals publish this nine dash line. In other words, they acquiesce to China's illegal claims on territories that actually belong to the Philippines, Vietnam, etc. Um, because um, the there are uh, usually Chinese co-authors who provide these maps. And when I raised it with a number of them, they said, well, well, we just do it because this is what the map... I said, well, are you endorsing Beijing's illegal claim? Oh, no, 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 no. It's just how it is. Um, and I spoke to some authors, co-authors in Australia, for example, and one in Commonwealth where, saying, well... Did you go along with this, this map? I mean, do you endorse Beijing's uh, claim of the South China Sea against the Philippines and Vietnam and so on? Oh, no, but, you know, the Chinese co-author just said we have to do it, so we went along with it. So there's another way. Uh, it's insidious and it's everywhere. And uh, 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 gradually people are starting to wake up to this and think, actually, you know, we as academics are interested in the truth, uh, we're interested in academic freedom. We're interested in not having our ideas censored by publishers. Uh, and we are going to assert our intellectual integrity by writing what we see as our true position based on our understanding of the world. Uh, we've got a long way to come back to get to that position. Uh, uh, but it's, it's something that has to be understood.
0: So one of the aspects that kind of came up in that explanation um, of these different ways of um, influencing published content and has also come up in a few of the other uh, aspects we've already discussed is the idea of um, people of Chinese descent, but who are not in China, right? We've mentioned Chinese, Australian business people, for example. Um, And this is something that is covered in the book. Could you tell us a little bit about um, how the CCP purposely organizes Um, people of Chinese descent living outside of China. To to clarify, I don't mean the CCP has some strings that they pull on every single person of Chinese descent outside of the mainland. That is absolutely not the point either I am making or that your book is making. Um, Instead, however, in the book, you do talk about how the CCP has purposeful organizations to try and essentially attract and convince people of Chinese descent living outside of China to work on their behalf. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about those organizations.
1: Yeah, this is an exceptionally important element of the CCP's influence operations abroad. Its um, capacity to influence uh, and in some cases coerce people of uh, Chinese descent uh, to uh, act in ways that benefit the CCP's exertion of power. It's a huge and complex area and, you know, it's it's one of the biggest areas in the book that we we talk about. I mean, the CCP has a very kind of, you know, frankly, race-based understanding of Chineseness. Um, It has attempted to capture, uh, mould and mobilise the notion of Chineseness. It believes that people of Chinese descent, no matter what their citizenship is, remain sons and daughters of China. And expects loyalty from them, um, which of course doesn't always get. <laughs> um, and so it, uh, the CCP has put enormous effort into controlling and shaping uh, uh, Chinese culture, whether it's from literature uh, to the uh, Pao or Chongsan movement, um, and more recent emigrants from China and, and, and Bear in mind that the diaspora is some 50 or 60 million people spread around the world, but more recent emigrants from China are more likely, naturally enough, to retain their links to China through family and business and so on and so forth, to have... um, More uh, stronger emotional and psychological needs to participate in activities associated with their ancestral homeland as you know most migrants do uh, uh, it weakens as the uh, generations uh, progress and so but these links family links business connections and so on that provide the CCP with tremendous leverage over many uh, people of Chinese uh, uh, heritage abroad including uh, overseas students, of course. Uh, in 2015, uh, President Xi Jinping designated Chinese students studying abroad as a new and important focus for United Front work. And United Front work is really the key to the whole um, relationship between the CCP and the, and the diaspora. Uh, United Front work aims to influence the choices and the and the direction and the loyalties of its targets, uh, in this case, people of Chinese uh, heritage uh, abroad, um, by uh, cementing loyalties to uh, China slash the party uh, and <clears throat> promoting favourable perceptions, and where possible, mobilising them to act in ways that um, the CCP <coughs> wants them to, and. It uh, relies on the kind of psychological techniques that uh, we of manipulation and behavioural control that uh, I talked about uh, before, um, and I don't <clears throat> want to go into. <clears throat> we really don't have time to go into the complex network of United Front organisations uh, and how they they uh, they they are connected from China into uh, Chinese community and professional organisations in countries like the United Kingdom or Australia or wherever really Um, but I would just point out that um, there was a very very kind of dramatic case in the United Kingdom earlier this year um, which um, I think for people who want to kind of take a closer look uh, can uh, act as a, a kind of way into understanding how all of this works and that was the very, very dramatic uh, move by MI5 to issue an alert to uh, parliamentarians uh, to stay away from a woman named Christine Lee. Christine Lee, uh, is a, she's a British citizen, uh, as far as I know, um, um, in Britain for some 30 years. Um, and MI5 said in its alert... Uh, that she is essentially an agent operating for the Chinese Communist Party. She's a united front uh, operative uh, and and uh, gave not a great deal of detail but uh, some detail about the kinds of activities and links that she'd been engaged in, including making large donations to uh, the Conservative Party, um, uh, donations funded, uh, it said, uh, rather, kind of obliquely, by uh, uh, people in Hong Kong and China. Now, the interesting thing about uh, well, there's just this was really unprecedented: I- issuing a public warning about a person to be you know, who, to be avoided because she's an agent for a foreign government. Um, what's interesting, w- w- why we took particular interest is in our book, Hidden Hand. We had devoted considerable attention to Christine Lee to uncovering her you know, links with United Front organisations in China, the way in which the organisation that she set up and ran in Britain uh, was part of the overseas influence operations of the Chinese Communist Party. And, of course, I um, received a lot of phone calls from Britain when the MI5 alert went out because various journalists and others were aware that, you know, we had written about her and in fact pretty much everything MI5 said we had said 18 months earlier uh, in our book. So there's a way for for those who uh, kind of weigh in to start understanding what all of this stuff is and and how it works or at least one part of it.
0: As you said it's um, a way in right it's one piece of what's discussed uh, and there is a lot more detail in the book but I'm glad we gave at least a brief overview of this aspect, because it is um, really quite interesting. And there is a lot of investigative work that clearly went into this. Um, So as we come to sort of the end of the interview, I'd love maybe a kind of, again, an overview idea of after doing this research, after writing this book, after engaging with all these different experts, um, what would be your kind of overall summary of what you think, from the outside, the CCP wants with these influence operations?
1: Well, first of all, we have to remember that the CCP is an organisation run by a relatively small number of very powerful and uh, and very paranoid men, one or two women, but mostly, mostly men. And they, they want to retain power, and they always live in fear that somebody somewhere will come along and knock them off, um, take all their money, uh, reduce them to nothing, put them in jail, and, and this, is ha- this happens all the time through Chinese, China's history, um, and some of the most powerful business people, some of the most powerful party bosses can suddenly one day find themselves charged and put in jail. So that's the... you always have to remind yourself of that. There are vulnerable, frightened human beings uh, running the show and their first objective is to retain power for the party and and themselves. And uh, that leads them to do all kinds of uh, uh, things... But they also, uh, in the last 20, 25 years, have decided that uh, retaining power and building power means uh, increasingly exerting influence and expressing China's uh, uh, power abroad. And so they see themselves as the natural hegemon in the Indo-Pacific region, and they've taken so many measures to exert that from essentially annexing the whole of the South China Sea illegally and building uh, military bases there um, from its uh, brutal um, takeover of Hong Kong to its very worrying uh, at, uh, and, and somewhat successful attempts so far to spread its influence within the uh, Western Pacific uh There's a great deal of fear that it will succeed in the Solomon Islands, for example, of uh, 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 building a a naval base uh, over the next decade or so, uh, which would be an enormous uh, strategic um, uh, setback for uh, the uh, Western powers. Well, not the Western powers. Uh, Let's talk about the Quad, Japan, India, Australia, United States. so China wants to be the dominant world power. It sees the West as um, as uh, fatigued, as finished, as uh, washed up, as declining, and that China uh, uh, has risen and will be the dominant economic power, the technological power, and after a time, military power, and it will become uh, the uh the dominant um, hegemonic power in the world, replacing the United States. That's what that's what it wants. That's what it's working towards. Um, so that's um, what um, what we're dealing with. Um, so um, uh, the stakes the stakes are big, to say the least.
0: Right. Well, exactly. And and it's therefore quite helpful to have a book um, such as this one that goes into. Uh, details and examples of exactly how this is being done, um, which I imagine will probably be useful for a lot of uh, listeners, particularly those of whom are not necessarily China specialists, to better understand kind of events as they're unfolding. Um, But of course, your work in some ways is done, the book is published. So what are you working on next? Another book about China, going back to climate change, something entirely different?
1: Mm, Good question. Well, you know, as I said at the outset, Miranda, I'm, I'm not a China expert. I'm not a, uh, a Um And so I, I, I kind of uh, got into this whole area, you know, because I desperately needed uh, to do something different uh, because I couldn't handle another book on climate change. Uh, little did I realise what I was getting myself into and, and what kind of pressures I'd Uh, I'd be um, exposed to Um, look I still do uh, uh, some things on China I give talks and briefings and um, uh, I I work with some uh, uh, Chinese uh, Chinese Australian researchers who investigate United Front activities and uh, sometimes uh, we do um, briefing papers and so on but uh, no I'm not planning any more books on China I've kind of done my china thing um largely um so um yeah what next well, i've written a memoir uh which uh, has been kind of interesting uh which will come out in a few months um yeah i'm i'm working i've been working i'm really intrigued by the question of young climate activists and uh what they're doing and more particularly what they're thinking and feeling and how they see the world, but I've also done something that kind of totally out of the blue during the the COVID lockdowns. I'm sure people in other countries noticed this too, but in Australia, we saw there were some pretty strict rules, lockdown rules uh, affecting travel and so on. And I happened to notice that uh, there were some very wealthy business people and influential celebrities and powerful elites and so on they managed to find their way around the rules. And, um, of course, in a way, there's nothing unexpected about that, except it contrasted so sharply with the with, with the kind of public message of, you know, we're all in this together. It turns out that actually that wasn't quite true, that 95% of us were all in it together. But there are some people who, uh, who weren't and could go off to their holiday homes or, you know, even travel around the world if they had the right connections. So I decided uh, uh, to write a book um, on privilege Uh, and so that's what I've been doing with a co-researcher at the University of Sydney, um, a sociologist, and so we're investigating privilege. It turns out, this might surprise some people, but it's an extremely under-researched uh, topic. Uh, of course, a lot of people mention it in passing, one way or another, but almost no one studies privilege as such. Um, and so, it yeah, the more you look at it, the more interesting uh, it becomes. So, that, yeah, that's what I'm up to.
0: Fascinating. Um, well, that last project in particular, sitting in London as I am at the minute, and uh, reading all of the coverage of the Sue Gray report about Boris Johnson and parties during lockdown um, is very relevant, I think, to those of us in the UK at the minute, and I'm sure many other places as well. So while you are off investigating privilege, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing on the majority of this episode which as a reminder is titled hidden hand exposing how the chinese communist party is reshaping the world um written by dr clive hamilton and dr marika olberg and we've been very lucky on the podcast today to have dr clive hamilton with us sharing your expertise and insights from the book so thank you very much for being with us
1: it's been a pleasure thank you